All right, take your Bible tonight. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2 and verse number 8. Revelation chapter 2 and verse number 8. Uh, we are going through the book of Revelation right now in, in our Sunday night services, and we haven't gotten very far, as you can see. Uh, we did cover chapter 1, and we talked about a vision that John had of Christ. He was on the Isle of Patmos. Um, uh, he, God gave him a vision. He turned. He saw a man who was standing among seven golden lampstands and, and seven lamps. And, of course, that those lampstands represented uh, the churches of Asia. There were seven churches of Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey, that Jesus was about to address. Matter of fact, the entire book of Revelation uh, was written to those seven churches of Asia. Now, they apply to any Christian, they apply to any church, and the things that we're looking at about these seven churches can apply to any church that reads them. And so, uh, we start out in chapter 2, and verse 1, Jesus addressed the church at Ephesus, who was a hard-working church, who was dedicated to God, who uh, was, was doctrinally sound, and they would not allow false teachers to come in. They were doing all the right things, but something was missing in that church, and that was a passionate love for Christ. And, you know, so he, he challenged them. He said, uh, if you do not repent, if you don't go back and do your first works and return to that first love, then I'm going to come and I will take your candlestick away. Now, we also mentioned that uh, the way that Jesus was introduced in chapter 1 is going to show up in his letters, in his individual letters to the seven churches. So we saw in chapter 1 that he was the one that was standing among the lampstands. He was walking amidst the candlesticks or the lampstands, and he had the seven stars, and we have likened those to the seven pastors of the churches there. Uh, he had those in his right hand, and so that shows complete authority over both the pastor and the churches there of Asia Minor. And so he addresses the church at Ephesus. He says, I am the one standing among the, the lampstands or the candlesticks. And he says, if you do not repent, I will come and I will take your lamp away. In other words, if they did not get back to their love for Christ, then God, he couldn't use them as a church. And, you know, we, we looked at this last week, that if we as a church, you know, we can have all the right things in place. We can have the, the, the 22 doctrinal statements now. We have them down pat and teach them and be sound. And we can notice and, and spot out false teachers when they come in. But if we do not love Christ with all our hearts, if we are not passionately in love with Jesus, and if that is not what motivates what we do, Paul even says that without love, all the right things um, are useless and they're unprofitable. And so uh, we saw a church without love last week. Now we're going to look at uh, the church at Smyrna in verses 8 through 11. Now, again, remember what we saw in chapter 1 is going to show up in all of these different letters. So we'll see that as we go along here. But Revelation chapter 2, verse 8, let's read down to verse 11. It says, And to the angel of the church at Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works, and the and tribulation, and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews, and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried. And you shall have tribulation ten days, but be faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcomes shall not be heard of the second death. 
Uh, let's bow again in prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would use your word tonight, that it would not return void, that you will accomplish exactly what you set out to accomplish tonight. God, I, I know that I'm the speaker and I, am, uh, I have faults, but Lord, you are perfect and your word is perfect. And I know that your spirit can use the words that we have tonight to, uh, to convict and bring repentance to us as individuals, but also to the church as a whole. God, show us tonight anything uh, that you find wrong with us. Examine our hearts, search our hearts, try us, see if there's any wicked way in us. Lord, I pray that you'll lead us in the way that's everlasting, that we will be repentant and obedient to any way that you lead our hearts this evening. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. In the seven letters to the church of Asia, there are actually two churches that Jesus commends. There's a church at Smyrna uh, that he has some good things to say about. There's also the church at Philadelphia that he commends as well. The rest of them are in trouble. And we've also talked about from the very first one, we talked about the fact that if God was to, to write a letter to us, uh, you know, what, what will that be like? You know, what will be our response? What would that letter say? If he said, I know your works... And I know your attitude. And I know the things that you've said. And I know how faithful you have been. Which, whichever way he went with that, you know, it's, it's kind of a fearful thing to think about Christ writing a letter uh, to our church. But he did write a letter to these seven churches. And they got those letters. And they read those letters. And now these letters are, uh, we know that they're inspi- the inspired word of God. And now they're there for us. And the Spirit can use uh, these very same letters that he wrote so many years ago. He can use the same letters to address issues in our church today as well. So let's be listening. Every single one of these letters that we're going to see at the very end, it says, He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As we go through these seven letters to the churches of Asia, I want our church to have an ear to hear. I want us to listen what's being said and listen to any way that the Spirit of God might be directing or correcting our church as we go uh, through this uh, through these letters. And uh, so we've, we've looked at the church at Ephesus. Tonight we're looking at the church at Smyrna, which he actually commends. Uh, the church at Smyrna was a solid, faithful church, but they were having some difficulty. Their difficulty was not, as we find in the letter here, was not due to their own rebelliousness. It wasn't due to anything that they were doing. They were actually falling under persecution because of their faith in Christ. And so they were going through some very trying times, and they would soon begin facing some fierce persecution, and some would even lose their lives. But I want you to look at how Jesus introduces himself to them. Now, to the one that had lost their love, he says, I am. He introduces himself as the one among the seven lampstands. But I want you to see how he introduces himself to the church that is going through and about to go through some serious persecution. He says in verse 8, to the angel, or we've been calling those the pastor of the church at Smyrna, right? These things say the first and the last, look at this, which was dead and is alive. To the church at Ephesus, he introduces himself as one with authority over the churches. To the church at Smyrna, who's going through suffering, he introduces himself as one who has suffered. As a lamb that's been slain. As a person who, following the will of God, lost everything, even his life. But he says, but I'm alive at the end of verse 8. If you look back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, 
John says that after he turned around, when I saw him, he said, I fell at his feet as dead. He laid his right hand upon me and said, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Now what hope do you think that this was given to a church that might very soon lose their own lives for the, the sake of the gospel? He says, in the same way that I was alive and I died, I suffered and, and died uh, for the cause. He says, I am alive forevermore. And I think there's hope here for that church of Smyrna that though they may endure horrific persecution and though they may even lose their lives, that one day He would raise them up as well. And that they too would be alive forevermore. There are three things that would be required of the church if they were to continue standing. And we see that first of all, they would be required to suffer. They would also be required to be strong. And then they would be required to be steadfast. And we're going to look at those as we go through here tonight. Now, the first thing that we said that will be required of this church at Smyrna, and this will be required of us if we are to face persecution in the future, this is what will be required of us. You will be, and they would be, required to suffer for Christ. I said this a couple weeks ago, but that kind of preaching doesn't really draw a whole lot of crowds, does it? I mean, we want to hear that things are going to be great. We want to hear that there's not going to be problems. That People love to think that once they get saved, they're not ever going to have to endure the hardships they went through before. But listen, life is life. The difference is, is you're going to go through the same struggles. You're going to lose people. You may even lose your own life. Your troubles may increase as a believer in Christ. But the difference is, is who we go through those problems with. When we have the Lord, we have a hope to look forward to. But you are going to suffer if you live for Christ. Amen. Matter of fact, the scriptures say, all those who live godly in Christ shall suffer persecution. Amen. Amen. It's like the dentist. Uh, last time we went over there, we hadn't gone in a while, and we just got one of those issues where it was an emergency, and, and we came in, and, and every time we go to the dentist, they get on to us. We got in there, and he was just hammering down on us. And he said, you know, you haven't been here in all these years. And he said, here's the thing. It's not if you go to the dentist. It's when you go to the dentist. You know, you are going to have to come see me one day. I'm one of those guys you've just got to come see. And I said, so get on a regular plan. We said, well, we don't have insurance, so I don't know how we're going to do that. But, you know, here's the thing about suffering persecution. If you live for God, you live godly in Christ. It's not if you suffer persecution No, all those who live godly in Christ shall suffer persecution. If you live godly at work, you're going to go through it at work. You live godly in your neighborhood, you're going to go through it in your neighborhood. You you take a stand for God in the community, you're going to go through it. And this church would as well. As much as the church may try to impact the city around them, often the church cannot escape being impacted by the community themselves. The church of Smyrna was definitely presented with hardships from the things that were going on downtown. Now, the city of Smyrna was highly influenced by two major religious groups. You had, first of all, the Roman imperial cult. And this was just basically a group of people that actually viewed the emperor as being God. And Smyrna was a major headquarter for this cult. So I want you to imagine, uh, and this is, I'm not making any cuts, and I don't want any any derogatory comments coming back when I say this, but I'm just using an example. Let's say that someone started an Obama church. 
And people are worshiping Obama, our president, as God. And so they're setting up in different communities. There's these different cults and you get together and you worship the president, whoever that may be. Now, it didn't matter who the president, who the emperor was. You worship the emperor. If he was emperor, he was God. And so uh, just imagine someone saying, well, we believe that the president is a God. And so every week you get together, you give sacrifices, you get together and worship uh, the, the president. And imagine that Orlando became not just a place that had one of those churches, but like a headquarters for this cult that was going on. And imagine how that might influence some of the communities around us. Well, that's exactly what was going on in Smyrna. Uh, they viewed the Roman emperor as being a god. And there was actually a cult that worshipped him. And this was a major uh, cultic center there uh, for this imperial cult. And so you had all these things going on there uh, connected with this uh, imperial cult. And anyone who refused to acknowledge Caesar as lord would be a social outcast. So in this town of Smyrna, if you said, you know what? I can't worship Caesar anymore because I worship Christ. Then number one, you didn't go to town and buy things. Number two, you didn't have a job anymore. You couldn't work. You couldn't buy food. There there was a lot of places where you couldn't trade. You were completely a social outcast uh, if you did this. And, And maybe even lose your life. It looks as though the church at Smyrna there was standing fast. They were being faithful to Christ. Even when they were being forced into all these different choices, they were faithful to the Lord and they were suffering because of it. There was also a lot of Judaism that was going on there as well. And the Jews did not have to complete with the imperialist cult because their religion was recognized by Rome. So they didn't really have to fight for their right to be there. However, they would definitely be opposed to Christianity. So if the the imperialists were not attacking you, then you had the Jewish people in town that were attacking you because you were calling uh, Jesus the Messiah. And, uh, And that's their word. That's their turn. They get to decide who the Messiah is going to be. And so the church of Smyrna was really going through a lot of different issues. The influence of these two religions made the church of Smyrna a target for persecution. These Christians were being ostracized by their townspeople. They were being fired by their jobs, forsaken by their friends and family. And Jesus said in verse 9, he says, I know your works. I know your tribulation. Tribulation is... Uh, Those are the, the dire problems that they're going through. He says, I know your poverty, but you are rich. I think that's such an interesting statement because when he, when he addresses the church at Laodicea, he says, you think you're rich, but you're poor. He says to the church at Smyrna, I know you're poor, but you're rich. Now, what was he talking about? Was he talking about money? No, he's talking about spiritually. The church at Laodicea thought they were great. He says, but you're nothing. He says to the church at Smyrna, you think you're nothing, but you have great wealth. You have great riches in heavenly places. He says, I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews, but are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Now, I'm not sure all the implications that go along there. There's some that say that these may have just been people who were playing at Judaism that may not have actually been Jews themselves, or this may have just been some really spiteful Jewish people in, in the community. I don't know what's going on there. But evidently they were causing a lot of problems for this church. He says, I know what's going on. I know what you're doing and I know what's happening to you. I know what's going on. 
Tribulation means oppression or affliction. And when he says poverty, we talked about that a second ago. Poverty is not just being poor. If we went around here and said, how many of you are poor? Everybody hold your hand up if you're poor tonight. Now, nobody wants to do that because you know I've got to spin on this, don't you? All right. I'll see how it is. But I think if anybody was like, man, I'm poor. I'm broke as a joke, you know. But when we're talking about being poor here, we're not just saying that we don't, we don't have three cars, we only have two. When we say poor here, we mean we don't know what we're going to eat tomorrow. Right. We don't know if we're going to have a roof over our heads tomorrow. We've got clothes that are wearing out. We don't know what we're going to wear tomorrow. That's the poor that he's talking about here. He says, you think you're poor, but you're rich. And as far as monetary things go, they were poor. They were completely destitute. But Jesus reminded them that they were rich in Him. Listen, we cannot even begin to imagine the sacrifices that they had made. And let me say this. He calls them poor, and He is actually talking about them being in dire poverty. But I want you to know that many of them probably weren't that way before they came to their faith in Christ. They were poor because of their belief in Jesus. Now we're going to get to this here in a second, but I want you to start thinking about yourself right now. See, because you haven't really had to give up very much for your faith in Christ. May have to dodge a coworker here or there. May have to uh, to to kind of just keep your mouth shut if people uh, start talking about religious things. But you haven't had to suffer that much for Christ yet. But I want you to think about you getting to a point where it's either you deny Christ or you don't eat. You deny Christ or you don't have a job. You deny Christ or you lose your life. I'll tell you, things will start getting real serious real quick. Amen. What have we given lately? What sacrifices have we had to make for our faith in Christ. And I, I'm not talking about the tithes of the offerings that we give, but what have you given for your faith in the Lord? Christians seem to be only concerned with what God can give us. And, and we're seeing this in our culture today. Uh, we come to church to get. We tithe because we have, I'm not saying that you do this, but I'm, I'm talking about as a whole. People are giving and they're tithing because of what they'll get back. Or because if I don't tithe, then God's going to withhold blessings from me. Almost everything that we do is motivated by either entertainment or accumulating more wealth. We go through life praying for God's handouts and then we're mad at Him when we don't get them. You know, sometimes it's hard for us to see past the here and now, past our own experiences. But if you were to pan out and look at the world as a whole, it's been said to me that if you have carpet in your house, you are among the most wealthy people in the world. How many of you have carpet in your house? Now, last house we had, it was all tile, but we could have had carpet if we wanted it. How many of you have food on your tables? 
got clothes on your back. Some of you have nice clothes on your back. These people have lost it all. They would have to suffer if they were continue standing for Christ. And they would have to be strong. That's the next thing I want to look at. Jesus revealed that the problems in Smyrna were about to get worse. Now, I'm sure everybody kind of took a deep breath when, when the pastor was reading this letter to the church. They're saying, yeah, we are in tribulation. Yeah, we are poor, but we don't have anything. I don't know what I'm eating tomorrow. And, and then he says, but hold on a second. It's about to get worse. Oh, man. Please don't say worse. But the church would soon face accusations. They would be imprisoned and even greater persecution than they had already experienced. If you look at verse 10, uh, verse 10, it says, For none of these things which you will suffer, uh, he says, Fear none of those things which you shall suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, and you will be tried, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be thou faithful unto death. I will give you a crown of life. He says, You're going to suffer. But listen, you need to be strong because what you are suffering now is about to increase. You see, so far you may, you may not have uh, been able to have a job or been able to buy food, but you'll soon be thrown in prison. And I want you to know, when you get thrown in prison back then and there, you didn't get three square meals a day and cable television. People died in prison. He said, you're going to be cast into prison. You're going, to, you're going to suffer great persecution. He says, and if you will be faithful unto death, I'll give you a crown of life. Now somebody might ask the question, would God really expect us to suffer that much? Would God ask you to give your life for Him? Let's say things get bad in America. Let's say that things completely go downhill. And let's not even consider for right now what's going on in politics today. But let's say that things in, over the next 10 years, next decade, things really begin to digress here in the United States. And all of a sudden, it is illegal for you to meet as a church and to worship openly as a church. Doing so and preaching God's word and agreeing with the Bible would be considered a hate crime. This is an imaginary situation. But let's say that went on. And let's say you were put to that point where you started being persecuted. All these different things are happening to you. And you say, well, would God really expect me to go hungry? Would He expect me to watch my kids starve because of my faith in Him? Would Jesus really expect that? Would He expect me to lose my own life? For my faith in Him. I want you to notice that Jesus didn't say, you're going to be thrown into prison, so run. He didn't say, you might lose your life, get out of here. He didn't excuse them from what was going to happen. He said, do not fear. This is going to happen Don't fear. Be strong. Verse 10, he says, And if you will endure, even to the point of losing your life, I'll give you the crown of life. And you say, well, how dare Jesus do that? I'm going to tell you how Jesus can say that. Because He stood there. And He took those blows on His back. He put His arms on that cross. 
He had the nails driven through those hands. He suffered in anguish for hours upon the cross until his heart completely gave out. Excruciating pain and death. He suffered. Why? For some crime he committed, no. He suffered it for you because he loved you. You see, he was faithful to you, a person who would spat in his face. He says, now I want you to be faithful to me. And if it means dying, then you stand there and you endure. Jesus is not going to ask us to do something that he wasn't willing to do himself. In fact, Jesus told his disciples to expect persecution. If they had persecuted him, they will persecute us as well. Jesus reminded the suffering church that he was the one. He says, and if you think I'm being unfair here, remember that I am the one who suffered on the cross for you. He says, these things saith the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end, but I died for you. And I'm alive forevermore. The church of Smyrna needed to be strong in their faith. And listen, the closer we come to the return of Christ, the more likely we also will be faced with persecution. Sometimes, again, I said we, we can only see so far through what we're going through, our own experiences, but please open your eyes to the fact that we're not talking about something that could happen. This isn't some imaginary thing that could happen. You go to other countries right now, And people are being killed for their faith in Christ every single day. Entire families are being run over by steamrollers, being beheaded, being uh, even sometimes uh, you know going through maybe even worse forms of death because of their faith in Christ. That's not something that has happened. It's something that's happening right now. And don't think that we can't go through the same thing here. Now listen, a few years ago, we as Americans may have never seen that as a possibility here in the States. But things are changing in our country. And I'm saying it's going to happen. I'm not trying to be a prophet, but I'm telling you, it can happen. It has happened. The Bible says it will happen. It can happen here. Christians have suffered persecution since the time of Jesus. In fact, every one of the apostles, traditionally, every one of the apostles except one, died a horrible death because of their faith in Christ. The one that uh, that didn't was, according to tradition, was the author of this book, but they tried. Those days may be sooner than we think. Calvary, we need to think and We need to enjoy and take advantage of our freedom as long as they are here. You see, right now we have the free. We can tell everybody about the gospel. And and the worst thing we're going to get is a punch in the face. And probably that's probably not even going to happen. You see, we have the freedom to spread the word right now, to tell every living being around us about the gospel. We have the freedom to do it. And we sit around and keep our mouth shut. We're afraid. We don't, we don't want to tell people about the gospel. Amen. You're talking about people here who have lost their jobs, lost everything, and they're being faithful 
and they're sharing the, the Word of God. We need to take advantage of the freedoms we have as long as we have them. Because there may come a day when we say, I wish we would have. I wish when things were different that we had told more people. I wish we'd have cared then. Remember that apathy I talked about last week? See, the thing is, is what I'm saying here doesn't really move people all that much anymore. Our hearts are hard. They would have to suffer. They'd have to be strong. And the last thing, they'd have to be steadfast. If this church was to be victorious through the hardships ahead, it would take complete dedication to God. And uh, Jesus used another word. If you look at verse 10, he used the word faithful. He said, fear not of the things that you will suffer. Behold, the devil will cast some of you into prison that you will be trying and you will have tribulation 10 days. But look at this. He says, but be faithful unto death and I will give thee the crown of life. Steadfastness means this. I looked it up just in our English dictionary. This is what the word steadfast means. It means to be fixed in direction. Now where are our eyes supposed to be? It says to be fixed, to stay put in a certain direction, to be firm in our purpose, our resolution, and faith. That's from an English dictionary. So what it means to be steadfast, to be faithful. It means to be fixed in a certain direction. I want you to keep your place there in Revelation chapter 2 and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. And I want you to look at what uh, we see here in chapter 12. Now while you're turning there, chapter 12 verse 1. This comes after a long chapter of people in, in Hebrews chapter 11 that God is saying these are heroes of the faith. These are people who believed even unto death that many of them were killed. They, were, they suffered great persecution and, and went through terrible things because of their faith in God. Now it says in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, Wherefore seeing we are so compassed about with a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. Now what is that cloud of witnesses? We're not talking about a cloud. He's saying there's a huge group of people who are looking on. What he's doing is he's painting a, a picture of us being in kind of an Olympic setting where there's bleachers, there's stands all around, and we're the runners in this race. And he says all these people out in the crowds are looking on, and who are they? You read chapter 11, you'll see exactly who they are. They're people who have run the race before us. They've finished the course. They've gone on. He says all these people are looking on. And since we are compassed or surrounded with such a great cloud of witnesses, with all those who have gone before us, he said, let us, let us lay aside every weight, the sin that does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now, how do we do that? He says, looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. Look at this. Who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let me tell you what that means. 
That means when you think you can't go any further, you are running this race called life and you are being faithful to Christ and it's hard and, and you, can't, you don't think you can go any further. He says, this is where you put your eyes. You look down at that finish line and there's Jesus waiting right there for you. But I want you to remember, I don't want you to see him in his glory. I want you to see him in his suffering. Look at his battered body. Look at the body that was bruised, the blood that was shed. Remember what he endured for you. And if you think I can't go any further, you think I got to give up. You look at him and you keep running. Yeah, it's going to hurt. It's going to be hard. But he says, if you'll run to the end, if you'll be faithful, if you'll fix your eyes in that direction and keep running. Look at what he says in verse 10, Revelation chapter 2. He says, I'll give you a crown of life. You know what the crown of life is? Literally, the word here means the winner's crown. And it's not a it's not a crown for kings. It's a crown for runners. It's a wreath that was put on their heads when they finished a course. He said to the church of Smyrna, you be faithful. You're going to go through it, it's going to hurt, it's going to it's going to burn. Anybody, do we have anybody who's been a runner or a track, run track or anything? Man, you're getting down that last stretch. Those legs start hurting and you're getting winded and you want to get, it hurts. He says, keep running. And when you do, when you reach the end, if you're faithful to the end, he says, I'll give you the winner's crown. I don't care what place you come in. You just finish the race I've set before you. You'll receive the crown of life. That's the winner's crown. Jesus promised a prize to those who would sacrifice, who would be courageous and be faithful to the end. The winner's crown. Let me say this. I've already mentioned this a little bit. During the time that these letters were written, the annual games were being played where athletes from all around would come to compete. And as it is with our Olympics today, it was an honor to have someone from your area to be the champion of that race. The winner of these games was awarded what is called the winner's crown. And each year Smyrna sent representatives from their town, athletes from their town, to go and to run in these races. This is something that was happening during the time when Jesus wrote this to them. They knew exactly what he meant here. He says, if you will represent my kingdom in this race, if you will run to the end, if you will suffer, if you will be strong and you'll be steadfast, He said, I'll give you the crown of life. You'll receive the winner's crown. In order to win the crown, it would require at least three things from those who competed. They'd have to suffer. They'd have to be strong. They'd have to be steadfast. And like their hometown athletes, the church at Smyrna was facing an everyday challenge. Hardships were coming from all directions. And listen, one thing that history has taught us is that times are uncertain. We never know what awaits us around the corner. In a short amount of time, things could be very different for Christians in this country. 
The possibility of such danger should not frighten us. The Lord has encouraged us not to be afraid. In fact, Paul in prison told Timothy that he has not given us the spirit of fear, but power. Yet if we're to stand in the day of trials, it's going to take resolve now. It's going to take strength now. Steadfastness right now. Because I'm going to tell you this, if you can't be faithful to Christ in freedom, you're not going to be faithful to Christ in persecution. You can sit back and you, you, can, you can try to glorify yourself all you want and say, oh, I'll stand. You, you won't stand now. What makes you think you'll stand then? Amen. We need to commit ourselves to God no matter what the cost. So the question I have is, would this church be able to stand in the day of persecution? If that law gets passed and enforced, how many of us will we see in the meetings? How many of us will continue to be faithful? If we're going to be, this will require the same three things we saw here. You're going to have to suffer. You're going to have to be strong in the Lord. You have to be steadfast. You fix your eyes on Him and you run no matter what. Listen, you may not go home today feeling warm and fuzzy inside. But my job is to preach the Word. And I'm telling you, this church endured it. The church of Smyrna went through this. There were other churches who would have if they had been as faithful as Smyrna. But he'll get to them later. But this church was going through it. And I'm going to tell you, we will, it's not a if, we will be put in a position. If we're going to be a sound church, if we're going to be faithful to God and faithful to His Word, we will be put in a situation where we're going to have to take a stand. Well, we're going to have to be strong. We're going to have to go through some suffering. And so you either, you either need to move your membership to a church that don't care, or you need to sit tight. Let's be strong. Let's be firm in what we believe. Let's, let's not waver. He says, if you'll endure to the end, you'll receive the winner's crown. And I won on that day of judgment. When I stand before Him, I want the words that He says to me to be, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. But let me tell you what He says to the others. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. You forsake Him here and there are dire consequences for that. I'm not talking about loss of salvation. understand what I'm saying. We need to be faithful. We want to hear those words on the day of judgment.